All right, well, we are getting into uh, our message now. It's uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1. You can turn there if you brought a Bible with you. It's uh, pretty close to the end, about uh, maybe, I don't know, seven-eighths through your Bible there kind of thing. You'll find it. Uh, over the next number of weeks and months, I'll probably be uh, leading us, not probably, I plan to, um, lead us through uh, a deeper study of uh, First and Second Peter, but uh, our text today is First Peter chapter 1, I'm just gonna, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Mythentia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, he writes. Uh, Ronald Reagan, he once told a story uh, of a man who was looking for some property to buy, and he was driving down an old country road, uh, clipping along at a pretty good pace, about 60 miles an hour, when all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he caught some kind of a crazy object running next to the side of his car. And he looked over, and he looked at a double take, and sure enough, it was a chicken. And as he looked closer, uh, he noticed that this not only was this chicken keeping up with him at 60 miles an hour, very fast, but perhaps the reason for his speed was that he was a three-legged chicken. And just as he was caught this third leg and was admiring the, uh, uh, the weirdness of this chicken, it, it, it actually pulled ahead, it hit the next gear, and just went screaming ahead of him uh, down the road. And uh, pretty soon, the guy's following him, trying to keep up to him, sees the chicken all of a sudden turn left, and just beeline it down a driveway into a barnyard. And so the man, very curious, he, you know, heads down there, pulls up to the barn, and out comes a farmer to greet him, and, and the man says, uh, did you by chance see an incredibly fast chicken, you know, come running through here? And the farmer said, well, yes, yes, I did, in fact. And uh, the, the man said, well, did you notice that the chicken had three legs? And the farmer said, uh, yeah, I, I raised them to be three-legged. And the man was really curious. He's like, what, really, why? And uh, the farmer says, well, my favorite part of the chicken is the drumstick. <laughs> and my wife's favorite part of the chicken is the drumstick. And then when Junior came along, his favorite part of the chicken is the drumstick. And so rather than fight at the dinner table over who's gonna get the two drumsticks, we decided to breed three-legged chickens. And uh, the man was uh, very surprised and impressed by it all, and he had to ask, well, he said, how, do, how, how, does, the, how does a three-legged chicken taste? And the farmer replied to him, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when I catch one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Charlie and I heard that joke on the radio uh, this week, and uh, I pass it on to you, not out of direct irrelevance to what we're chatting about today. Although I think that joke stands on its own three legs, but uh, I'm a dad, just forgive me, all right? It's to, to really get us primed a little bit for this text and what uh, this whole letter 
the first two, uh, the first and second uh, Peter are all about. Uh, and it's the reality is that sometimes being a Christian, in fact, oftentimes, being a Christian in this world can feel like being a three-legged chicken in that people think that you're a little bit off or weird, uh, and they might even be so um, offended by your presence and what you believe that they might want to stop you or mock you or maybe even kill and eat you. Uh, not literally, of course. This letter, First Peter, is a letter written to people who weren't liked or understood by their neighbors because of their faith in Jesus. It is a letter written to Christians who were tempted to give in to the popular thought and ways and rhythms and values of their peers, of their culture. It's a letter written to people who found that their freedom in Christ didn't deliver them, at least immediately, from a corrupt and oppressive government. It's a letter written to Christians that found that their faith in Christ made their neighbors and their friends believe that they were ignorant, repressive, narrow-minded, and weird. It's a letter written to Christians who found that their faith in Christ was only causing more friction than what it was already existing in the workplace, in their marriage with an unbelieving spouse, and other relationships. Paul writes this letter to help those Christians stand firm. We, write, we read at the end of uh, the, this first letter. And in 2 Peter, he tells, that, he tells us that he wrote both letters to stimulate us to wholesome thinking to actually have her head screwed on straight. Now, all of this that Peter writes in our text today and the, the letters overall, it, none of it is a theory to Paul. It was a lived experience and reality for him. For he was a man just like any other man, yet he was called, chosen by Jesus to be a disciple. And the first few years especially of his life following Jesus were uh, rough, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Peter went from being a hot-tempered, blue-collar fisherman to calmly and persuasively debating and preaching before the most brilliant religious minds of his day, dumbfounding them. He tried walking on water, only to fall in. At one point, a low point, I'd say the lowest point in his life, although there's a number of them, he was embarrassed and ashamed to be associated with Jesus to the point that he actually denied even knowing him. But by the grace of Jesus and the power of his spirit, Peter eventually became a pillar of the faith, a missionary to both Jew and Gentile, and ultimately a martyr, somebody who would die for his faith in Christ. He was a living witness to the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was the leader on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled those new believers. He was humble enough to change his theology when confronted and corrected through the word and by the Spirit, and through his peers even, 
And he wrote this letter to churches in modern-day Turkey that were feeling and going through many of the same, same things that he had been through and he was currently going through. This was fresh and real and raw and lived by Peter. And from his resume of successes and failures in the faith, he writes them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to help them understand how to live given the tension between what was and what is and what's to come in light of Christ. So over the next few weeks and months, I plan uh, to spend some time together on Sundays reading through this letter with the desire for it to let it read us, to read our minds and our hearts and our lives, where we've been, where we are, where we're going, opening our lives to the power of God's word through Peter to us. Our text today, just two verses, is the opening greeting or introduction, and they in themselves, although it is short, reveal much. First, that the author, Peter, reminds his reader of his own place before God and them. Peter is an apostle, meaning that he is a disciple of Jesus. He is an eyewitness to Christ, uh, the resurrected Christ, and he was sent by the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and to make disciples, teaching those disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. And so Peter, just in these first few words, is doing and being who he was commissioned and provisioned to be and to do, teaching the followers of Jesus how to obey the commands of Jesus even when it's unpopular to do so, even when it makes an already challenging life even extra challenging. When your spouse is a jerk, when being a Christian makes you a second-class citizen in society, when the government actually blames things on you and oppresses you, when following Jesus only makes life harder for you. He's teaching disciples of Jesus how to obey Jesus in situations and seasons and circumstances like that. He's being an apostle. Second, Peter reminds his readers who they are. And he does so in a remarkable way. Peter's audience, surprisingly, is actually primarily Gentile, as revealed a number of times in this letter itself meaning that he is preaching or writing or speaking to people that weren't born a Jew. And Peter reveals that they too, like those that were born a Jew, are a part of the family of God. In fact, even more so, for becoming a part of the family of God isn't something that you are born into naturally. It is something that you are born into spiritually by faith in God. We actually can read in Hebrews chapter 11 that many of the Jewish heroes of the faith were saved, were counted righteous, were made right with God, not because they were born a Jew, not because of their nationality, but because of their faith in God. Their faith in God was credited to them as righteous. 
And for both Jews and Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus, they have been born again and born into the family of God. A new covenant relationship, a new citizenship, a new identity, a new heart, and new resources through the gift of the Spirit, the Word, and the church. Peter reminds these believers that they share all the privileges of being a part of the family of God. And the first word that he uses to describe who they are, and by way of scripture today, who we are, is this word, elect. There are many things to love about this word and its priority in Peter's reminder to us of who we are. For of greatest importance in learning who we are is how God defines us, who God says we are. It doesn't matter who we think we are. It doesn't matter what the world, uh, uh, what others think who we, uh, we are. What matters is who our maker says we are. If we want to know truly who we are, It starts and ends in who God says we are. I look at the world and it is frantically Instagramming, proudly marching, aggressively canceling, all in a drive to have the world affirm who they think and say they are. Or our world tries to find themselves by being made up in the image of our world, bending and yielding, conforming to what is popular, or as the kids say, what is woke, living and dying by the God of likes and follows. And to the degree that we look within or are built up by our fickle fan base is the degree to which we will feel empty and life will be empty. For we were made for a relationship with our maker, with our creator. Life starts and stops. Life is defined in who he says we are. And to his followers in Christ, he says, you are my elect. That word elect is kind of a cold word. (laughs) I think it's why some of our translations will use the word chosen. In fact, our translation, the NIV, adds it a second time and changes it to that word chosen later on to further our clarity and understanding of what Peter is trying to communicate. Either word, elect or chosen, it means that you're not part of the family of God by mistake or by your own doing. He didn't adopt you because you learned the secret knock. And even though he doesn't really like you, rules are rules and he'll let you in because you knew the secret knock. It's not what it means. It's actually the opposite of that. It means that he knew you before you were born. It means that he made you. It means that he knew that you would rebel against him run away from home, but he also knew that you would welcome his gift of salvation through Christ. And he determined with all of his might and power to move heaven 
and earth to make a way for you to come home to him. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. He wanted you. He chose you. If you have given your life to Christ, then he has chosen you. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, then what are you waiting for? He loves you too. In fact, 2 Peter 3.9 says he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So when your faith in Christ puts you in the unpopular camp or requires that you deny your flesh what your flesh longs for or calls you to live a life that is extra challenging, remember the most important part of who you are is that God chose you. You know whose you are. And in order to know who we are in the world, we need to know who we are before God. And when we know who we are before God, we know who we are in the world. Next, Peter reminds his readers that because their citizenship and allegiance is in Christ, they are foreigners in the world they are living in. The translation that, that we use today, the NIV, uses the phrase strangers in the world. Kind of ominous. While other translations will use the terms like foreigners, exiles, and my personal favorite, aliens. <laughs> aliens in the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Not those kind of aliens, but a metaphor, yes. If you find that because of Christ, the ways and values of the world don't line up with your faith in Christ, it shouldn't surprise you. You are of another world, born of another father, the second Adam, with different values, different ambitions, different goals, definitions of success, different customs and practices. I mean, how weird is it that we practice communion, right? It's weird to our world. In fact, back in these, these days when uh, Christians were practicing communion, there, there's all kinds of crazy rumors going about of what Christians were doing in those meetings when they were taking communion. They're drinking somebody's blood. They're eating somebody's flesh. They're cannibals. All kinds of crazy stuff. But we are of another world. We define good and evil not by what the world says is right or wrong, not by what we feel and think should be right or wrong, but by God's word. He defines what is right and wrong, good and evil. We believe in heaven and hell. That's, that's so weird <laughs> to our neighbors. We believe that we're actually not born inherently good, but we are actually born inherently broken, inherently sinful and rebellious, a slave to our flesh and a slave to sin and death, and that we are in need, desperate need of a new heart. We believe that we are to love our enemy when the world says you have every right to write that person off. 
They're toxic. We're called to love our enemy. And on and on and on it goes, the differences between being born into the family of God and being a family member of him versus being born of this world. You might be, because of Christ, a minority in your workplace, a minority in your school, in your friend group, in your family, in your neighborhood. You might be the only Christian there, surrounded by a people and culture that think that you are weird and or wrong. But that doesn't mean (laughs) that you're weird or wrong. You could be on some levels. It's a sign that you beat, uh, sorry, that you (laughs) march to the beat, sorry. You march to the beat of heaven and not the God of this world. Now, if you're a jerk about your faith, then that actually is a sin. And Peter's going to write about that a little bit later in this letter. But if you follow Jesus, then you will believe and you will live differently than this world. And it is a sign that you are a part of the family of God. If you feel like a stranger, an alien, an exile, a foreigner in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, in your family, there's a reason for it, a good reason. For all throughout history, the people of God have been sojourners, strangers in the land, in the world but not of the world, spread out with a specific mission that they have been blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Now these first two verses are just chock full of Old Testament language and imagery to reaffirm to these new covenant people of God in Christ that they are both the fulfillment and the expression of what the Old Testament promised the people of God. So if we find ourselves in this world, but not of this world, identifying with the struggle of God's people throughout history, then we're on track. Peter then in verse 2 leads the church into a deepening affirmation of who they are. It says this, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Meaning, again, that you were chosen on purpose, that we are actually the fruit of the Spirit's work, not our own, in calling us to see the love and wisdom of Jesus. We have responded in obedience, given him our yes. And he has covered us in his blood, making us right with him. Now that last phrase for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood is borrowed by Peter from Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, we read about how the newly freed captives, slaves of Egypt, have been given God's way, God's law for how they are to live in this world. And Moses shares with the people what God commands and asks of them if they want to enter into this covenant relationship with him. And they are given the choice. They can receive him and adopt him as their Lord, as their God, and yield to him in his ways, or they can go and do their own thing. 
And the people of God answer this invitation given through Moses with a very bold yes. They say it like this. Everything, everything the Lord has said we will do. What does Moses do? He writes it down. (laughs) I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) He writes it all down. And then he built an altar, 12 stones. And he slays a bunch of young bulls as a fellowship offering, as a community offering, recognizing this is what's bringing them into right relationship with God. Verse 8 of Exodus 24 says this, Then he took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And just like the Israelites were led out of slavery by God, they too were presented with a gracious, God-led, God-designed opportunity to receive or reject God. And upon their acceptance of his invitation, they were sprinkled with blood, a sacrifice to cover their sins, a way back to God. And there we have it. We are chosen. God has worked and is working out his plan of salvation by his spirit. That unless the spirit had been working, we wouldn't have been smart enough or humble enough to choose God, to see and to hear him. But our decision to trust him and obey is the evidence of his grace, of his goodness, faithfulness and power, and the way to receive forgiveness of sins and be made right with him. Meaning that it's not just some generic spiritual acceptance of God. The way of salvation, the way to be made right with God is responding to his grace, responding to the words in the way that he has asked us to go and actually obeying. There's a specific way. So when you find yourself living in an upside-down world, begin by remembering who you are. You are a forgiven Obedient, spirit-empowered, chosen child of a loving, strong, truthful, and faithful father. The God over all chose you. No wonder Peter writes what he writes next. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. When you know that, when you live in that reality, when you remember that reality that he chose you, how can you not be overwhelmed with his increasing grace and peace in your life? It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you feel about everything. It changes how you engage the world around you. For as the reality of who you are in Christ fills your mind and heart, floods your spirit and shines a light on your lot in this life, no matter how hard your lot is, there is a tangible grace, a tangible peace 
that begins growing within us. And I'll give you a hint to the beginning of next week's text. He says, praise be to God. So how's your memory? Does your life look more like the world or more like Jesus? How, how are you doing living in a world, living in a country that thinks Christians are ignorant bigots? How are you doing with that? Have you compromised? Have you stuck your head in the sand hoping that you won't get hit in the advance or the crossfire in culture? Or maybe you've started fighting back. Oh, I'm going to get them. Oh, I thought of a really good argument that'll just smash them. I'm going I'm to post this right now. We've got to get some some kind of a power system going here. I know, we'll elect this person or that person and, and, and they, will, they will fight back against this. None of those responses, the sticking your head in the sand or the compromising or the fighting back, as we'll learn in this letter, are the way of Christ. How are you doing? Living in a country where Christians are more known or increasingly known for residential schools, pedophile priests, and their long history of being condescending and judgmental in their attitude and posture and treatment of others. How's your attitude towards God if your station in life, his will for your life has you suffering and struggling. Peter's letter, and both his letters actually, address all of these realities and more. In the words to come, we will be given what we need to stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. Music team can come up. Uh, Lord, as we go through this life with all of its ups and downs, with all of its temptations and pressures, with all of its injustices and indulgences, with all of our weaknesses and our strengths, may we find ourselves in you. With the knowledge we have of you shine brightly on our conflict within and around us. Let your love your spirit's presence and power and your son's truth and grace define us and strengthen us to live as your people in a world bound by sin and death, ruled by the evil one. Help us to live holy lives filled with love for you and others. Help us to know who you are and who we are. In your name we pray, amen.